Hi, Karen Peterson. Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where women can be imperfect victims too. And we, I don't even know what to say. And we are are imperfect. (laughs) We're imperfect. There we go. We're imperfect, but we are very smart and very right all the time. All the time. So we're we're not perfect, but we are always right. I think exactly is is the way to. That's the big takeaway from this show yeah really is what it is i am karen peterson joined as always by lauren humphreys brooks hello <laughs> should i say joined and rescued as always <laughs> <laughs> oh man it's been a week so my job my regular day job which is not in the entertainment industry switches to a 410 schedule during the summer and that means four 10-hour days and then we get Friday off. But the problem is I'm so tired by the time Friday comes, I just sleep all day. <laughs> so it's like, may as well still be on eights. I don't know. Anyway, that's my life. How are you, Lauren? Fun times. I'm pretty yeah. good. I'm pretty good. Yeah, for some, I, I think this has just been a week for some reason. You know, um, it's true. Because even people outside of my job, it just seems extremely abnormally exhausting this week. Yeah, just like stuff happening i guess is like and and for me personally it's nothing necessarily bad it's just like stuff keeps on happening can stuff just not happen (laughs) can i not i don't want to have to do stuff maybe it's something about the transition from like you know it's it's june we're getting into july it's sort of like it's finally really summertime and like all of that transition has kind of happened i don't know but yeah, it's summer, it's, we're learning exactly how close we came to losing our constitution last year. Um, there's, yeah, there's yeah. a lot happening yeah. in the world. A lot. Ezra Miller is still missing. And has yet another, um, uh, some like someone else has, has filed a restraining another order against him. Protective order, yeah. Protective order, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this, yeah, the... D- d- they they are not they need to be found like i'm a i'm scared honestly. yeah one of the articles this <laughs> week about the second protective order it it was describing this party they'd been at and oh yeah. man it just someone is going to end up killed if this doesn't get brought to a conclusion really quickly yeah there's obviously something really not good going on um Mm -hmm. and and they they seem certainly from all the all descriptions they seem very unstable right yeah yeah i mean miller clearly needs help they clearly need to find them and whoever whoever they're with i'm not sure it sounds like they're still with um tsukata is that correct or at least Takata still hasn't emerged yeah may i yeah. think that that's the thing they're not well no one seems to be certain where miller is to begin with so they don't yeah. know exactly what's going on 
Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a wild story in a very, very sad way. And I think it's going to end up tragic if, uh, if this doesn't reach a conclusion very soon. Um, and Warner brothers, it still hasn't said anything publicly, but there's been some articles deadline had a, had an article yesterday that, um, the studio is basically, they're not saying anything publicly, but they're having a lot of private conversations about what to do and um there's a sense that even if the flash comes out next year as is that'll be it like they won't continue with with ezra miller in that role but who knows i mean that's that's not an official announcement so who knows they might change their minds we'll see and and who knows if that movie will still end up being released i mean they probably have to. There's probably legal reasons why the studio has to put it out. Yeah. Um, contractual obligations to other people who worked on it, but I don't know. We'll see. It's just a really sad situation. It's right. obviously a really sad situation. All and all of the descriptions are are basically like this is not just a, a toxic person. This is someone who needs help. Quite yeah. obviously needs help. Yeah. There, there's yeah. <laughs> And I think it gets really easy to get caught up in those, in those situations and like, and just, you know, brand someone as being evil. And that, that is possible. I mean, that could be part of this, who knows, but more likely they really need help. They really need mental help. They probably need uh, some drug rehab. Uh, There's probably a lot of just assistance and uh, medical attention that they need. So anyway yeah fun stuff lots of fun (laughs) happy times it's weird that we're all so tired (laughs) anyway uh so last last week last week (laughs) remember only last week week. (laughs) (laughs) so last week we talked about um uh about a lot of good things and if you haven't listened to it you should go back and listen to it because we were very brilliant and smart um (laughs) and we talked about queer coding in classic film uh we talked pretty extensively about that and we got a great comment from nanina who said just listened to your most recent episode about queer coding in classic film and it made me think about one of the most fascinating queer coded heroic characters uh, is Leslie Howard's Philip Armstrong Scott in the Powell and Pressburger, the 49th parallel. He described himself as a decadent and the Nazis very derisively call him not a man, but he still gets to beat up Nazis and knock one out cold at the end of his section. As you said in the episode, there's a difference between what we see today as queer and what an audience back then would have, but there are enough little things coupled with the fact of the Nazi party vocally decrying and actively persecuting homosexuals that coding Leslie Howard's character as queer actually served a propaganda purpose too. So thank you for that. Lauren, do you have any thoughts? Well, I, I, this was an interesting point because um, I think she actually brings up something that's like a broader, um, thing the 49th parallel is interesting have you seen the 49th parallel i have not it's it's an interesting it's very much a propaganda film but basically it's about um a a group of german uh naval officers i believe who who essentially they're they're basically if i remember correctly their submarine gets wrecked 
And this, this group of Germans winds up on Canadian soil. And what, and this is the point at which I believe America has not yet entered the war, but Canada has obviously. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to cross the border um, into the United States so that they can actually, so that they can escape. So it's this, it's actually this really interesting uh, uh, element that, that, you know, they're actually going to be safe on American soil. That's my memory. I'm not 100%, um, not 100% on that. But so this, the story mainly focuses on these different German um, soldiers winding up in different situations with, uh, with people in Canada, right? So they run into Laurence Olivier, who plays a French-Canadian fur trapper, which I find quite hilarious. Um, but so a lot of it is about Nazi is propaganda. <laughs> a lot, no, he's, he's ridiculous. He's the worst casting in the entire film. Uh, have uh, you met any French-Canadians? <laughs> Like it just knows French accent doesn't like it's not that's not in anything that does not sound like any human being has ever sounded in the history of French. Again, Canada. have you met a French Canadian? <laughs> True. Maybe it's a perfect representation of French Canadians. I don't oh, know. I'll have to watch it and judge. <laughs> um, but so one of the characters that they that that one of the Nazis runs into is played by Leslie Howard, who is like this. Uh, I think that he's actually a British national who has come to Canada and he's basically like absented himself from the conflict, right? And what winds up happening is that there's like a lot of dialogue and a lot of conversation that is that essentially comes down to um, him making a choice about whether or not he's actually going to fight back against this Nazi. And it's it's an interesting character. And I think Howard generally is actually a really interesting um, example. And he's kind of an example of something we didn't talk about much, which is this kind of stereotyped, somewhat um, feminized, somewhat effete character who nevertheless actually is, you know, might might be read as queer coded and then ultimately is, is a positive character, is, is uh, someone who does wind up fighting back. And Howard played a lot of those characters where, you know, he's kind of like, oh, it's all of those stereotypes, just like, oh, you're weak, your feet, you're, you're debauched at some level. Um, and then it, it's what actually transpires is that this, this character is a badass, right? And, um, Later on, I think it's like 1942, uh, Howard basically did an, an update of the Scarlet Pimpernel in a film called Pimpernel Smith, where he's playing a similar character. He's like this professor who brings his students to Germany. And it turns out that he's actually like rescuing people from uh, from right under the nose of the Nazis, basically. So I, I think that this it's a good point, particularly in view of, um, in view of Esna Nina saying in view of the propaganda uh, that is being wrought that you're actually taking these supposedly, supposedly or apparently quote weak characters who are also queer coded in the sense that they're very refined. They're not these, you know, hyper-masculine men particularly and saying like that this is actually a strength um, and that this is a way to fight back against the sort of hyper-masculinity of the Nazis themselves. Um, and the anti the anti intellectualism of the Nazis. Hmm. So it, it's an interest it's an interesting point. I'm I'm glad that she brought it up because that was that was one that I had not thought of particularly. Um, but it does kind of push back against 
And there's no real indication, you know, in at least in terms of Howard's character in the Fortnite Parallel, there's no real indication about whether he's gay or not or anything. But he's definitely typed as being not this hyper masculine figure. And, uh, you know, so def- at least a different representation of positive masculinity. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I will add that movie to my list as well. <laughs> well, and one of the like other movie list is always good. <laughs> that's good. That's a good thing. One of, one of the others that I was thinking about actually was characters like Cary Grant and bringing up baby. Oh yeah, you mentioned um, that one too. Yeah, who has it's that similar sort of intellectual, the geek basically, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the intellectual, the sort of gentle, not particularly concerned with his presentations of masculinity, and of course, it's part of I think part of the joke in in bringing up baby is also that Cary Grant is himself this very you know tall, broad shouldered, very good looking man, right? And so some of the the joke is putting him in in these consistently kind of um, not humiliating situations, but situations where he's just like extremely put upon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it is this, it, it, that's humorous, but it is this very positive representation of intellectual masculinity and of um, things that would be considered, you know, less masculine particularly, uh, and, and still is very considered to be very positive. And I, and of course we've got the the added the added layer that Cary Grant was was very prob could have possibly gay very probably bis- bisexual, um, and actually makes a joke about being gay in the film. <laughs> I I know I saw that movie, but I don't really remember it. So you don't remember bringing up Baby? No, like My I don't God, remember. God, I know I love Cary Grant too. I don't I don't know. <laughs> so maybe I didn't actually watch it. I just. Um, so Cary Grant in a fluffy pink negligee. I know I've seen that. I know I've <laughs> You've seen, seen that. that scene. You've at least seen that yeah. scene. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But those those know. kinds of characters, you know, and, right. and some of it is that love of putting very good looking men in, you know, oh, we're going to geek him up. So we're going to put glasses on him, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. I, I mean, I think that there's even, again, a joke where uh, Kate Hepburn, Kate Hepburn says just like, oh, you are good looking without your glasses. <laughs> and just like, girl, he's good looking with his glasses. He's good looking in just about any situation, to be honest. Yeah, you can't really make him not good looking. It's pretty impossible. Yeah, the, the only film where Cary Grant stops being good looking is uh, I Was a Male War Bride, which is he, he spends the last 30 minutes of it in drag. And I have to say that Cary Grant is <laughs> is not an attractive woman for such a for such a, a an amazingly attractive man. He is not an attractive woman. That is true. That is true. He uh, he just doesn't have does the face. Make a pretty woman. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have the face for it. It's like it's amazing. We're just like I don't know how this works, but apparently, very some very attractive men cannot be attractive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to talk about this week is, um, so last week we talked about, uh, sorry, I just pulled up a website that has a million pop-ups. Stop doing that on your website. It's so annoying. Ah, anyway, uh, sorry, just a little side note there, but, um, one of the things that we want to talk about 
since we talked about classic film last week, we want to talk about a little bit more contemporary um, movies, tropes, things that that we just still can't seem to get away from. Um, and one of those for, you know, sometimes it's good. Often it's just used as kind of a excuse of like, hey, look at us. We're being representative. And that's the gay best friend. Um so let's talk a little bit about that first. Um, Lauren, you found a interesting article, but it is um, it looks like a transcript of a podcast. Yeah, it's it's actually a transcript of a I think a YouTube video, but it, it gives oh, okay. a very it gives a very good breakdown I think of the origins of the gay best friend and what the gay best friend actually looks like. Yeah, this um, is actually pretty cool because it yeah. um it talks about the gay best friend. It says how it became a stereotype, and um and so it goes into um it has some some clips from different shows, including things like Sex in the City, um and it goes into some of the the ways that this trope is is deployed. So like the gay fashion accessory, <laughs> and um. I laugh because it's just like, yeah, it's such a ridiculous, yeah. The gay ideal man. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about this first and some of the examples that we've seen of these. So why don't you talk a little bit about first the gay fashion accessory? Well, uh, the gay fashion accessory seems to be like, you know, and, and I think that we recognize this when we see it is, is the, that trope of the straight white woman usually who has a gay best friend or a gay friend who is there to kind of um, basically flesh out her character or give more, um, like kind of give her adv relationship advice, uh, tell her how to dress, things like that. And I, I thought it was interesting because this, this particular article slash video relates it to the trope of the sissy from the films in the in 1930s. And that's a good point. Uh, and something that's covered in the, the book and the documentary, The Cellular Closet, this idea of, and something we didn't talk about much last week, but this idea of the, the gay comic relief, basically. Yeah. And that this was acceptable in the in the 30s. And then the Hayes Code came in and, and things shifted a lot. Um, although you could still you can still see it, particularly in films of the 1950s and 60s. And then it comes back uh in the 90s and the aughts where you kind of you know and you can even think about some of the the actors who plays rupert everett played this character a lot mm -hmm. um and yeah that that's sort of the 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 sassy gay best friend who you know it gives her relationship advice gives the main female character relationship advice explains to her how she should be pleasing her man all that um, one of the things that that um, I think we should know is that very often, despite the fact that these characters are typed as gay, right? So they're flamboyant, they dress well, you know, all of those kind of gay male stereotypes. Very often, they're not particularly sexual. Right. Like they, you don't see them on dates or with partners or, um, you know, talking about really talking about their relationships with men. They're they're primarily concerned with driving the narrative of the straight white woman forward mm -hmm. um yeah. so yeah it's it's almost like the like they're more more fleshed out than that but they they are almost like a handbag 
mm-hmm. um, or a, a puppy or something like that. That's just like, oh, we, you know, you have to have this as a straight white woman in New York City. You have to have the gay best friend. Right. Yeah. Like the the very first example I think of when I think of this trope is you mentioned Rupert Everett. It's George in My Best Friend's Wedding, where he's the one that that Julia Roberts calls every time like because she's trying to trying to stop this wedding from happening because she decides that she's in love with her best friend um who is Dermot Mulroney and she calls George every time she you know has some new scheme or has some new worry about this not working this plot and he's not helping her uh get get um what's his name the the friend he's trying to convince her that this is stupid and she shouldn't be doing it but um, but yeah, she's she's constantly reaching out to him for help and to the point where he eventually even gets on a plane and comes to try to help bail her out of the situation she's gotten her in. And that leads into a great musical number. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's- but yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's almost like, you know, and I, I was thinking about there's there are other tropes of of similar marginalized communities that you have, but it's basically the magical the magical right. gay, right? Yeah. That he's and and in, in certain of these films, he's always right or he always gives good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, always a man, never a lesbian, never a, a bisexual female friend, but always always a, a man and always a very flamboyant gay, right? So yeah. someone who like is is again kind of that stereotype it, it does go back to the, the the concept of the sissy that very stereotypical presentation of gayness in men mm-hmm. um and and yeah and he he's magical he's like oh i'm going to give you good advice i'm going to get you together with the straight guy um i you know and it's i, I think the article mentions that, that it's almost a requirement in these films that they have a gay best friend mm-hmm. um, that's the only way you can survive essentially Right. Yeah. Any other examples you can think of off trying, the top of your head? I was trying to think about this. Well, I, I think the one of the ones that gets mentioned a lot is is um and I don't remember the name of the character, but it's Carrie's friend in Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. Um, who is much more of a fleshed out character, if I remember correctly, but still it's this it's a similar thing where um, you know, he's constantly giving her relationship advice. He's mean, right? That's that's one of the other elements that there's a meanness. to the gay best friend that you know they're kind of like well they're telling it like it is sort of thing right like they're allowed to be snarky in a way that we straight people aren't or whatever you know yeah um and are allowed at times to be misogynist in the way that straight Mm -hmm. men are like that's that's one of the things i think that that some of this actually then you begin getting into talking about gay male culture but one of the things that this concept kind of contributes to is this idea that gay men have a special insight into fashion into um relationships etc that women don't and that they're allowed to say things to women that straight men are not allowed to say particularly and and it can it can slide into some really disturbing kind of sexist and misogynist tropes Mm -hmm. uh the one of the other characters i think that was mentioned is the stanley tucci character in the devil wears prada um similar kind of thing again more fleshed out in a lot of ways and you do have and in a lot of ways these characters are more positive representations than some of the things we see but there it's still these like secondary tropes basically Mm -hmm. they're not they're less than people yeah 
Yeah. Another one I thought of was, um, I think his name is Damien in Mean Girls. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's like when Katie befriends um, the the two that are not part of the, you know, the in crowd, the two friends. And one of them is a gay man, gay young man. And yeah, it's it's very... It, it totally fits into all of this too. He's flamboyant. He's he's snarky. Uh, crosses into very mean at times, and um, but he's he's very funny. Um, and that's the thing is like he gets all the best all the best best one liners. So that's uh, also another thing that's pretty typical of of this trope. Um, yeah, there's something else I was about to say and I lost it mid sentence. I hate when that happens. Um, what about the character Brandon in Easy A? Mm-hmm. Uh, her her again her best friend and you know and I th- again I think that that's a little bit that's pushing the trope forward a little bit. It's a more yeah. positive representation and a more nuanced representation, but you still have that element of like what starts out as a as almost a function his what starts out as almost his story becomes hers. Right. Yeah, it does. But I think that his, I I feel like his is a little bit different as far as these tropes go. And I know you said it's pushing it forward, but I feel like him being gay really mattered to the story. I think a lot of times this trope could be accomplished in so many other ways. The character doesn't have to be a gay man. Um, But in EZA, in EZA, he really kind of had to be because the whole the whole inciting incident for her story is that she's trying to help him because he's being bullied so badly because he's gay. And then ultimately by the end of that movie, he's decided to embrace it. And he, as they, as they say, he runs off with a hulking black guy who is very hot, by the way, um, because you get to see them together. He embraces his sexuality. So I feel like that one's a little bit different, but yeah. And like, like, like you're saying it also avoid, avoids that cut that desexualization thing that right. I was I was talking about earlier that you know the gay best friend as not a particularly sexual person mm-hmm. anyways right like, like as in we don't actually we don't actually see them being gay right yeah <laughs> like being like oh I'm attracted to men I have sex with men I'm in a relationship with a man you know that kind of thing very often they're like um yeah they're they're not particularly sexual one way or the other <laughs> Right. But I think that what we are seeing more and more, I mean, these characters have been around for a long time. These types of characters, this trope has existed for a while. But I think what we're seeing is it feels like just about every movie, especially ones that have young adult casts, have at least one LGBTQ character in the in the central like group, the core group. But they're usually not the lead. And yeah, they frequently don't get the opportunity to uh, to, like you say, to be sexual and to to really take that on. They're just kind of like I'm thinking of the uh, the friend in Freaky. Did you ever get around to seeing Freaky? I never saw Freaky. No. OK, well, it's still it's a very fun movie. But yeah, one of like she's in a you know, she's got two best friends. One of them is a is a gay young man. And it's like. He, he fits into all these characters too, uh, all these tropes or stereotypes that we're talking about too. And I'm just trying to think like, yeah, he doesn't really get any sort of a, um, an actual sexualized character. He just talks a lot about it, but, um, but then you have stuff like 
the chilling adventures of sabrina which is a show on netflix four seasons and one of her best friends um i can't think of the character's name i think it's theo is trans and theo gets to actually date boys and and more it's one of the more um um what's the word i'm looking for just more fleshed out examples representations of this best friend that um that i have seen at least um at least anytime recently but i think the main Mm -hmm. point is that they never get to be the main character yeah yeah very rarely exactly Mm -hmm. yeah um let's see so there there was also uh, the the ideal man the gay ideal ideal man man. yeah Yeah. the, the gay ideal man and so some uh let's see so it says if the gay best friend trope purports to celebrate gay people as the ide- ideal platonic companion then the gay love interest for a straight woman takes this one step further <laughs> stories about a woman wishing her gay friend were straight or make mistaking him for straight elevate the gay character into a paragon of masculinity an idea of what straight women wish straight men would be refined sensitive mm-hmm. and emotionally vulnerable yep so what are some examples here that you can think of well the the two that immediately come to mind and and these are both mentioned in in the 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 article are the object of my affection and um clueless Mm -hmm. and clueless i think is a little bit more liminal because it becomes like christian he becomes her gay best friend. He does become her gay best friend, right? And and I kind of like that. I like the fact that, you know, she makes a mistake at the beginning, yeah. right? Yeah. She's like, oh, okay, well, but we'll still be friends, right? And and so I do actually kind of like what Clueless does with that at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, because there, and there are gay jokes and it's just like, okay, this, this dude is quite obviously not interested in women. Um you know, and you, and you have all that, but I like the fact that it takes this character who, you know, could have been mean, could have been unlike, and, and she responds with like, oh, okay, well, we'll just be friends then, you know, since, since you're not attracted to women. So right. I like that a bit, but it, it is that, that like, you know, we want men who are going to be sensitive. We want men who are going to want to go shopping with us, uh, want to, you know, do want to watch romantic comedies all of that and then of course it, it turns out that what we want are gay men <laughs> um and again it comes down to a stereotype first of all you know there are many gay men who do not want to go shopping there are many gay men who do not want to watch romantic comedies um and and also kind of kind of says that that straight men or bisexual men are lesser in at some level that like they're not they're not doing what women actually want um and i think that that's always one of the problems when whenever you get into this kind of stereotyping that's always a problem because you're saying something about masculinity men who want to do these things are not straight right uh even though obviously it's perfectly possible that men who want to do those things are also straight mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um I'm trying to think of some other examples. Nothing else is coming to mind off the top of my head. Um, I know that there's, I know that there's plenty more, but 
Um, yeah, the the object of my affection is more, uh, you know, more than clueless. It's because it's that's the central kind of conflict, basically, right. yeah. is that she figures out that she's essentially in love with her gay best friend. Mm-hmm. And um, and and he's not in love with her. But there there is almost if I remember that film correctly, there's a moment where they almost have sex and they and then it winds up not happening but there is almost this sense that like that that disturbing sense that oh the right woman can convert him can make him not gay right mm-hmm. <laughs> um and and that in itself is is again that's a trope that's a stereotype and that's a stereotype about queerness generally the right person of the opposite gender can fix your homosexuality can yeah. change your homosexuality I was trying to think of, um, there's, we were talking earlier this week about some other examples before we go into the, the other trope that we we're talking about, just like other recent examples where they've just kind of put gay characters into a movie that's not necessarily like the best friend trope or whatever, but it's like, um, they're just kind of there and existing and we're seeing this more and more too, which I think is a good thing. Um, and I also think it's, it's interesting when, like, I think one of the things that really made me think about this backing up a little bit was Nanina's comment. Um, cause I was watching Jojo rabbit again this week and I had totally forgotten about Sam Rockwell's character in that. Cause I haven't seen that movie now in about two years. Um, and I had completely forgotten about Sam Rockwell and Alfie Allen and how here they are. <laughs> they have to be Nazis. They have to fight for Germany and they are not able to be who they are, which they are gay men, very in love with each other. I know there was some weirdness where people tried to say that that was not what was going on, but that was very much what was going on. <laughs> and um Anyway, I forgot where I was going with that. But um, I think just in general, we're seeing more of um, not necessarily tropes, but sometimes maybe they are. But we're just seeing more of just letting people from the LGBTQ community exist on film. And I think that that's great. Like we had, um, oh my gosh, I gave a couple of examples. Now I can't remember some of the other ones that I thought of. Do you? Do you remember that conversation? I don't. I don't remember that specific conversation. Hmm. Maybe I was not having it with you. Maybe I was having <laughs> it in my head. I was going to say something in re- in relation to that, though. But what one of the things that we're talking about actually is, is in terms of talking about tropes and stereotypes, is that gayness is the central concern of a lot of these characters. Their main right. identity is being gay, mm-hmm. right? And that is what that's that's their function in the narrative their function is to be gay and i think that i i agree with you we're seeing more and more characters whose main function is not just that whose main identity is not just they just that right. they are gay it's a part of their identity and it's an important part of their identity but part of i think lgbtq representation has to be that you know people who are queer have other things going on, right? <laughs> they have other yeah. sources of their identity. And one of the problems I think with media representation is that we start out with like, okay, we have to get more representation of LGBTQ characters. Okay, great. So we're going to have representation, but the main focus is being certain that everybody knows they're gay. 
or right. they're bisexual or they're trans rather than actually, you know, treating them as, as we're talking about as fully fleshed out human beings mm-hmm. who have their own desires and friendships and all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with their queer identity. Um, and, and I, I do think that we're getting to see that more and we're also getting to see more the fluidity of gender identification and sexual identification that it isn't, you know, it isn't as binary as it used to be, even as it used to be in, in the early aughts, right? Which really wasn't that long ago, although it's getting to be. Um, and, and I think that that's important too. We're also seeing more representations of different kinds of gayness. A lot of the tropes that we're talking about are basically flamboyant male characters. Right, mm-hmm. who are represented as like you, you can, it's, it's almost like, well, you could tell that they're gay. Part of the joke in Clueless is that the audience can tell that Christian is gay. Right. Um, the only person who doesn't seem to be noticing it is, is, um, oh, Cher. Fuck, Cher there we go. Mm-hmm. I was going to say <laughs> L, and I was like, that's not her name. Um, so the only one who doesn't really notice is, is, is Cher, right? Uh, and, and so that's, that's the joke. So the joke is that the audience can recognize this and and she can't because he's doing all of these very stereotypical gay things. Mm -hmm. Um, one, one of the others that, um, that actually came up and I love the film, but it's, it's one of those films that does kind of trade on these stereotypes is in and out. Yeah. Uh, where you have, you've got Kevin Klein playing a man who up until someone accidentally outs him on national television (laughs) thinks he's straight which by the way was based on what happened when tom hanks won the oscar for philadelphia really i didn't know that yeah (laughs) yeah i I think there's some debate over whether he actually accidentally outed somebody or whether that was a little bit overblown but yeah that was based on yeah Mm mm-hmm and I mean, I, I love the film and I think it's a very, it's a very funny film. And I like the fact that, you know, it is about a, a man kind of coming to an understanding of his own identity, but at the same time, it does play on a lot of those tropes that you, you know, and he's, he's treated as like, oh, he's this perfect man. Here are all of these things that he likes <laughs> that most men don't. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, what eventually transpires is, well, it's because he's, he's gay. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so it trades on those stereotypes and deliberately trades on those stereotypes. And there are different representations of, of gayness in that film. Um, but it does kind of come back to that, that trope of the, the ideal man being a gay man. Yeah. You know what's interesting about in and out though? And I have not watched this in a long time, but there are very specific scenes that just stick out in my memory so much. But uh, like one of them is when they're at the wedding, which is now being called off. And Joan Cusack is standing there in her wedding dress and talking about, she says, do you know how many times I had to watch funny lady? And he's just like, she was contractually obligated, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, um, and like she, she, so Joan Cusack, who is the, the fiance, who's basically um, her, finding her life crumbling because She's been waiting for years for him to finally marry her. And um, she she really does go through and break down. And she's just like, you know, talking about how she, he wouldn't marry her until she lost so much weight. And 
he wouldn't marry her. He had all these excuses for not marrying her, which we understand is because he didn't, he hadn't come to terms with who he was, but it also, I think shows the toxicity that happens happened in their case as a result of that. So it's like, there's this interesting, yeah. um, there's this, it's it's just interesting to show like because he wasn't able to be true to himself he was also hurting other people and he wasn't her ideal man as much as she wanted to convince herself that that he was and then she gets rewarded because then she gets someone who will accept and treat her and love her for whatever and it's like offering her cake you know here eat up you know and and so it's that that movie is an interesting um uh all around there's there's just a lot of interesting things that it does and i wonder how much different it would look if it was made today instead of in the 90s but um because i think there were just certain things that still studios were afraid to do in the 90s because they were afraid of what audiences would and would not accept and pay money for uh which still Mm -hmm. of course is part of the problem now but it's less of a problem now i guess yeah, and, and I think that what we're seeing now, like, like you say, is is greater fleshing out of these characters, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing wrong with having with you know the, having a gay best friend. That's right. There's that's perfectly fine. The problem is when they are tropes, yes, and symbols at some level rather than actual human beings. And um, and yeah, and, and like you say, we're we're seeing more variations basically. <laughs> Um, so it ceases to be so a, a, a good example is um, uh, Titus on uh, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which, you know, has its yeah. own problems as a show, yeah. but Titus is very much his own character. He is a very fleshed out character. He's a very important character. So he doesn't fall into the trope in the same way, even though he's right. the friend of one of the main characters, right? He's very much the person that he is. Yeah. Um, and and you see that time and again. We also see well, you he know, gets his own storylines. Like yeah. he's not just there to be her best friend. He and her exactly. roommate, whatever. Like, yeah, he has a whole he has a whole world and full relationships. And also his lemonade scene was one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. <laughs> I mean, he's got some of the most memorable scenes in the show are, are yes. him, you know. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, but but I think that that's that's just that there should be this different ways of being as well. We're we're beginning to break down some of those stereotypes, and also noting that you know there. So like Har- Harvey Firestein in the in the documentary Cellular Clause was like, well, I always loved the sissy because that's who I was. Right? Mm-hmm. He liked the trope because he saw himself in the trope. Yeah. Um. And so to you know, so there's. I, I think that there is more in, in at least media representation, there's more understanding of the different ways to be gay and the different ways that people are gay. And it's everything from, you know, people, uh, drag queens, right? And da- down to someone that you know, like, well, you can't tell when someone's gay. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think we are we are definitely advancing on on these things, but it's amazing how long these kind of tropes have gone on, and the fact that there's still this danger of characters falling into those tropes, uh, especially at least in the attempt of giving representation to LGBTQ people, and then being like, well, actually, you're just kind of falling back into the same stereotypes. Right. Do you think at this point? 
Um, do you think that those stereotypes are happening because of the filmmakers or because of the studios still? I, I have a feeling that there's a combination of stuff going on. I mean, we, we've talked about, um, we've talked about the issues of representation and uh, representation behind the camera as well. So not just the filmmakers, but the writers, right? Um, who is actually writing the stories. And, and, and we've talked about that in terms of a lot of different kinds of representation, uh, not, not just LGBTQ, but yeah, I, I think that it's obvious that we're getting more filmmakers who have a better understanding of identity and are themselves LGBTQ, et cetera. And, but I also think that we're getting, we're beginning to get the studios looking at this and going like, well, you know, we can, we might safely be able to, to include representation in our films or to break down some of those stereotypes. But I mean, Hollywood, as much as we want to talk about Hollywood being progressive, Hollywood is, very, is still very conservative in a lot of ways. They're constantly trying to appeal to the middle of the road of America. And the middle of the road of America is much more willing to accept the flamboyant gay man, as long as we don't, we aren't actually reminded that, you know, he has sex with men. Um, right. Well, I think and, because they like it, because then they can laugh at that character. Yeah. That characters there to be funny. It's humorous. It's comic relief. It's entertaining. It's non-threatening, right? right? Particularly as long as you kind of desexualize uh, gay men or gay women, there's no threat to them. There's no like, they're going to make your kids gay or um, they're going to be sexually attracted to you or something like that. And the more that you actually show these people as people, uh, the more you, you have to accept their humanity and the more that you have to recognize that they are people who exist in your world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel like we'll kind of, I mean, we have a agenda here but um i think i'm going to jump in right now to talk a little bit about disney uh, we were going to talk about that a little bit later but um i think this is a good point to talk about it where yeah, definitely yeah where disney has been um increasing the number of characters they have included in um animated and live action films that are gay but of course, that has been met with a lot of very deserved criticism because they have typically included these characters in a way where they can easily be removed for certain markets. Um, they also do it in such a way where it's like, you could say they're gay or not gay. Like, it's just, it's been very, the quote unquote inclusion that Disney has liked to pat themselves on the back for um, has not been real inclusion has not been really embracing um that gay people can exist in the world of disney movies um what is really interesting is what's happening now with lightyear which is a movie that i have mixed yeah. feelings about and um my review by the time you listen to this is up on the website but um but it, one of the things that really stands out for me in a positive way is although it, it is very confusing how this worked if you know like the physics of the movie and stuff but and and just like the there are certain um certain things that happen that i don't want to give away that it's i just i have questions about why this would have been possible 
technologically speaking. But anyway, sorry, I'm talking around it. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about because I saw. The I know. Movie I'm like. I'm own. really. I'm realizing like this makes no sense whatsoever. I'm just <laughs> saying a lot of words. So basically, what's happening is, um, and I'll say this with as as few details that will give anything away about the movie as possible. But um, basically, Buzz is part of a crew, a small crew. They're marooned on a planet, but they've been transporting. There's a lot of people that they have with them. They've just been like cryogenically frozen or sleeping or something. Anyway, so they're stuck on this planet and Buzz is working on trying to find ways to get them uh saved like basically be able to escape this planet and his uh his best friend in that movie is actually a lesbian and she's another space ranger well this mission that buzz is on takes so long that uh he just catches up with her every couple of years basically And so you get glimpses of her entire life and she ends up getting married to a woman and they end up having a baby together. And that's the part where I'm like, I don't know how they would have had the technology for that, but it's fine. I'm not judging. I'm not questioning it. It's fine. Anyway, the point is that this is not a a character or a scene that they can just pull out of the movie. There are very significant things that happen throughout. Like it would require major editing to remove that character's side storyline from the movie. And Disney said, we're not going to do that. In fact, they are willing to not be released in certain markets, like in Saudi Arabia, uh, which is what we have been saying on this podcast. We've said this before, that that's what they needed to do. It was just say, you know what? Forget it. We're willing to take the loss of some money in those markets. If you're not going to show our movie, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And so they're finally starting to, to do that. Um but it's taken a really long time and and you still have a character who's very much not a main character in the movie um but at least it's like okay disney's finally starting to take real Uh active steps does that make sense yeah no that that does make sense and actually that was something that i was wondering about because i i haven't seen the movie yet and but a lot of the the conversations surrounding it i was like because you know i've seen i've seen little clips etc and i've been like well is this more like you know kind of what we've seen disney do before but the way that people were talking it was like no i don't think that it is and so it's it's good to know that and um that you know you're you're actually getting (laughs) inclusiveness um in in a way that is a part of the plot right that Mm -hmm. isn't just kind of a side note or a, a brief kind of reference or something like that but this is actually integrated into the plot that's good to see and i i do actually think that it, it says something good um about amazingly enough for all of the issues we've been going through about american culture because one of the things that disney is disney is an excellent barometer of mainstream american culture yeah. and where kind of, you know you're talking about like i was saying the middle of the road of america um, so not hyper conservative, not not hyper liberal or progressive, but just kind of where your average everyday moderate American exists. And it's quite obvious that Disney at least believes and feels that this kind of inclusion is something that people will will accept, if not necessarily support, but will at least be willing to, to you know, understand and to, to process in a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. And and that's a really important, I think, kind of indication of where American culture is at. At the same time, you're kind of like, well, 
long time in fucking coming guys. Yeah. Um, and they're not particularly taking a risk, uh, at least with, with this thing, because it's, this is a kind of standard, this is an established IP. Yeah. Um, this is something that, you know, a lot of people are going to see just because it's a part of it's Pixar, just because it's a part of the, um, the toy story universe, et cetera. Uh, but it definitely, I think it definitely says that American culture might actually be at a point where we're willing to accept this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And so it's like, obviously you've got certain people that we don't need to name that are, you know, part of that ultra conservative, let's overthrow the government group of people. Um, and you know talk show hosts and whatnot that are complaining about this they're really you know like oh this is the death of american culture it's like i'm sorry i have so many kids in my life like i have so many friends that have kids that have you know like kids in their classes starting in preschool and kindergarten that are like yeah so-and-so has two dads and this friend has two moms. And it's like, this kids are, this is what kids are experiencing. Like this is normal to children. So putting it in a Disney movie, kids mm-hmm. aren't going to question it because this is part of their experience. This is the world they're growing up in. This is not forcing an agenda down anyone's throat. This is just reflecting the world that we live in. But I think that that's just it, that that's what a lot of these commentators are afraid of. And yes. that's why we're seeing so much push pushback from certain quadrants of, and again, you have to talk about it. Those far, far right wing people are still a minority in the United States. Yes, they are. They're just extremely loud. So it's hard to, it's easy to forget that they are. We talk about them as though they're like, you know, oh, it's all of America. It's like, no, this is like an actually very small, but very vocal section of the population. Right. right? Um, But yeah, but I think that that is what they're afraid of. And because Disney in particular has is so representative of where American culture stands and whether or not that's something that they understand um, when the, that they understand explicitly, they understand it intrinsically. Mm-hmm. And they recognize that when Disney starts providing LGBTQ representation that is integral to the plot, I really do think that they recognize at some level that they're they're on the losing side, that they are yeah. losing. And that that's where a lot of the anger is coming from. We mm-hmm. we talked about not that long ago about the the backlash against the, the current feminist movement. And that one of the reasons why we see backlash and the more intense the backlash, that means that something is actually changing. And that the people who were accustomed to being in power and were accustomed to getting their way aren't getting it anymore. Yeah. Um, and they're scared. And and so I do think that that's things like Lightyear, as simple as it might appear to be, is actually an indication of um, of American culture and probably world culture in a lot of ways continuing to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very positive thing. At the same time, I don't think we need to like pat Disney on the back for this because Disney is still representing what they think mainstream America can handle. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think where I see the signs of hope as far as Disney goes is not as much with these um, more inclusive characters starting to emerge. It's with them finally taking a stance against other countries and saying, fine, you don't want to release this movie? Fine. We don't need you. We won't release it there. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is where it's really starting to, to show that they are committed um, more than they ever have been to, uh, to really truly being more inclusive, inclusive. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a really good point. And again, it says that at the end of the day, you know, Disney's bottom line is money. Yeah. Um, they think that they are going to not particularly be hurt at the box office mm-hmm. by declining to remove storylines, et cetera, in order to appease the governments or the conservative views of other nations. Right. Um, and that's that that's a positive thing. You know, I, I think that, again, it's it's good to look at that and to note it because you're talking about a corporation that at the end of the day is only really interested in making money. Yeah, well, that's why corporations exist. Yes. So. Yeah. Filmmaking is about money making, guys. I know that we want to believe it is something else, but it's really what it's going for. <laughs> it's not show fun. It's show business. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, speaking of, of movies. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you've been seeing a few because you're covering Tribeca. I have been seeing. Yes, I have been seeing a few and I'm very slowly getting my reviews up onto up onto our website. Um, yeah, I mean, Tri- Tribeca, I've talked about Tribeca, I think, on this podcast for five years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tribeca is always interesting because there's just like, I think more so than almost any other film festival, there's just a lot of films. Um, And they tend to focus very much on indie films, international films, and particularly on documentaries. Um, One thing that Tribeca is very dependable on is, is documentaries. And, and I've seen a few good ones so far. Uh, I recently wrote a review of the billion dollar babies, uh, which is the story of the creation of the cabbage patch kids. Um, and, and that, that one's, it's, that's a fairly straightforward documentary. Like it's, it's not, it isn't breaking new ground particularly, but it is really fascinating. And, uh, and as someone who grew up with, you know, I had two Cabbage Patch Kids. In fact, my mother like read my article was like, oh, here's a picture of you with your two like Cabbage Patch Kids. I was like, oh, Elmer Gordon. <laughs> I remember these guys. I think they're still up in my parents' attic. Aww. Um, but so it's it's a fun documentary. I think it's really interesting. It's kind of interesting, particularly in view of the the phenomenon around Cabbage Patch Kids. This was kind of the first toy that really spawned the concept of Black Friday, and uh, and you know I mean there there because it happened in the eighties. There's a lot of archival footage of it, and people literally trampling each other to get mm-hmm. these toys. And it's wild. It, it really is wild. It's a wild phenomenon. And it's something that keeps on recurring. Right. And, you know, and I, I'm certain that, that people have talked about um, the the reasons behind this, but the, it, it does kind of just represent this sort of American greed and madness. And and when you look at it, it's like it's over like the, they're dolls. I mean, the documentary is like, oh, we don't call them dolls. We call them children. It's like, no, they're dolls. They're toys. They're expensive toys, <laughs> they're right? They're cute though. They're they're adorable and um and and kids love them. I loved mine. Uh and but but it, there is something just very bizarre about it. This this like the must-have toy of the year, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting documentary. I, I do recommend it. Like I say, it doesn't particularly break new ground, um, although it does delve into some of the licensing issues and particularly the fact that the the concept may or may not have been stolen from another artist um which means it probably was it's the documentary i think is pulling back a little bit because they don't want to get their asses sued (laughs) um 
but yeah, there's, there's, they definitely give another side to the story um, that lets, allows us to draw our own conclusions, but I think it's pretty clear what the conclusion should be. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting documentary. Well, the one that I watched yesterday, actually, that I'm going to, I should have a review up um, within the next few days is a film called The Big Payback, which is specifically about reparations for slavery and the push for that, uh, both in the House of Representatives and in um, where kind of the, the first law uh, about about slavery reparations started, which was in Evanston, Illinois, very, very recently, um, where the town, the, the local government has basically decided to use tax revenue to begin paying back the black community. Um, and it's a very interesting film. It's very personal. It's very much about local politics. And, but I think that it highlights very well how local politics can start a, um, a movement and can really, the fact that they were able to, to push this bill forward actually began showing other communities that this is something that's possible, this is something that's desirable, and, um, and now it's pushing it forward even more, up to and including the House of Representatives that has had a reparations bill kind of floating around for years and has only just recently brought that bill up into a committee. And um, it's, it's a really interesting film. And I think it, it highlights the, the importance of local politics and why this, it is actually very important to, to vote in your local elections and things like that, because it does make differences in, in individual people's lives, but it also drives the country forward. Um, so I, I do really recommend that one. Interesting. What was that called? Uh, the Big Payback. The Big Payback. Okay. And, and this is specifically actually in relationship to um, the legalization of marijuana and communities being able to, this is something that's being talked about in New York now as well, um, communities being able to take revenue from the marijuana industry and put it towards reparations for the black community, be, given that black people in particular are the most targeted over marijuana arrests, et cetera. And so they should be the ones to benefit the most from uh, marijuana's legalization. So it's a very interesting film. I, I do recommend it. Hmm. It sounds interesting. Um, I, I think the final one I really want to shout out, I wrote a review on the website, so I won't go into too much detail uh, on this, but I really enjoyed God Save the Queens, uh, which is a sort of sweet, gentle, very entertaining comedy about uh, a quartet of drag queens, <laughs> all of whom meet on this group retreat where they're kind of working through some of their issues. Um, but most of the film is actually about their like individual stories about how they got there. And one of the things that I really liked about it, and I mentioned this in my review, is the fact that um, it isn't about kind of, it isn't the glamorous drag queen lifestyle, right? It, we, we've tended to glamorize drag queens in a lot of ways now. And to kind of ignore the fact that for a lot of, of people, this is a major struggle. This is a struggle for self-expression. It's a struggle for art. And, uh, and, and the vast majority of drag queens obviously are not going to be massively successful. They're not gonna be on RuPaul's Drag Race, um, which is funny because three out of the four performers in, in this film are, were actually on RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> um, 
but it's it's a very good kind of it's more of a window and it's a positive window it's funny it's entertaining again you know we're talking about it it treats it treats these these men as um actual people versus stereotypes or tropes uh or you know just kind of comic relief and it really is uh, entertaining. It's fun to watch, and um, and it gives you more of an insight, I think, into the amount of work that goes into being a drag queen, um, and the amount of heartache as well. So yes, recommend that. God save the queens. I think it's still um, you can still stream it on Tribeca Watch at Home. Uh, all of these films, in fact, I think you can stream on Tribeca Watch at Home now. Cool. So yes, that's what I've been watching. Karen, what have you been watching? I finally, I feel like I'm the last person (laughs) on the planet, um, or at least on Twitter. I finally watched RRR last night. And that movie is so wonderful and so good. And I was just like, you know, I think this is the best action movie I've seen in a very long time. It really is. Yeah, like just just obviously a lot of what happens is like not really possible, but it's so fun and well choreographed. It's it's really entertaining, but the movie itself is is just the story is so good. I don't want to go too much into it because you've already talked a lot about it um, when you were reviewing it, but um, just I really love the the friendship between these two men and and sort of the journey they go on um, separately. But when they realize their interests align, when they realize their interests don't align, I just, I think it's such a a great, great film. And I totally understand why everyone's been just nuts for it because it's, it's fantastic. And yeah, it's three hours long, but it flies by. I was not bored at any point watching it. I was not like, Oh my gosh, how much longer is there? In fact, at one point, a friend called me, and so I paused the movie, and I saw that there was still like an hour and a half left. I was basically about halfway through, and I was just like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, I thought I had just started it, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so it's just, it's it's very, very good. It's on Netflix, so you've already got it in your house right now, so you should watch it so good so good i'm so glad that you got to see it um yeah me too it's fantastic it's it's one that has actually lived up to the hype i think uh and i mean i remember when i watched it, i was just like this is wild man yes this is like musical numbers there's (laughs) yeah i love that the title doesn't actually come up until about half an hour into the film and you've already got like an entire you've got like the storylines are going it's just like wait a minute the film hasn't started (laughs) which is funny because drive my car did that too where it's like you have about a half hour of exposition before the movie actually starts (laughs) but it it works and it's good yeah it's good. And I think more things should be settled with dance-offs, like, honestly. Yes. Yeah, I mean, really, honestly. Uh, it's, it's, not- it's, it's, it's sad, it's tragic, it's hopeful, it's happy, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, this is one of those movies that has everything. It's got something for everyone, 
and everything for someone. <laughs> <laughs> Including dudes throwing leopards at other dudes. Oh my gosh. When that happened, I was like, this is officially the best movie of ever. <laughs> <laughs> he just threw that leopard at that guy. <laughs> and then the motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Oh no, the whole thing. And it's it's just so that entire scene was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I, we, we've talked a couple of times about like films abandoning subtext. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I support that wholeheartedly. And, and actually like, if we get more like American films as well, like RRR, because it's been so successful here. Um, I really, I really hope that we get this. Just like, just drop all the subtext. Let's just have some fun. This is like, we're just going to grab the flag and we're going to jump off a bridge. <laughs> I was save a child. Like, yeah. I was thinking like, what would be a good American equivalent? Like if they were going to try to take this movie idea and make it something that's American, like what would be a good, a good time? And I was like, you know, we haven't really seen any movies about the war of 1812. <laughs> that's that's true although it's the war of 1812 is such a stupid war i know that's why i think it could work for a movie with this kind of you know i don't know i mean i i honestly like just going back to the american revolution not that or... the indian revolution was stupid it was very not i didn't no. mean that like this is set po uh, pre yeah like during colonialism but I, I, I think that actually like if you if you up if you put it if you put that kind of story in an american context you do have to do like pre-American revolution or American revolution. Yeah. Um, because you have, because I think one of the things that makes our work as well as it does is because the British are terrible. Are terrible. And they, and I've said, I said this a couple of times because some people misunderstood me on Twitter. It's like, no, the British are terrible. They're vilified and they should be. They are mm -hmm. awful, right? And when I was watching, I was just like, you know, you know, there's a lot of differences between India and America, but one thing we can agree on is fuck the English. Yep. Like we just be like, you know what? We're going to get together. We're going to like fuck up the English. It's so true. Um, <laughs> so true. Yeah. I think that an American revolution or pre-American revolution film um, about like, you know, freedom fighters beating the crap out of the British. Like you can't mm -hmm. argue with that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Just don't put Mel Gibson in it and call it the Patriot. <laughs> I I admit that I enjoy that film a great I deal. Do too, I hate that with, I like it. With the caveat that I know, like people are like, well, you know, it's not true, right? So yeah, I know it's not true. I am absolutely aware of the fact that none of this is true, but also <laughs> fuck the English. Um, Very much. And yes, I will perfectly enjoy like watching Mel Gibson just mow down a bunch of British soldiers. Like <laughs> fuck the English. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So uh, any final thoughts, any other movies you want to recommend? Any? Uh... Well, in, in terms of, I just wanted to give a shout out one more time. It is pride month, uh, which means that you are legally required, I think, to, to watch bound <laughs> um, the, the Wachowskis film, which is a neo-noir about, um, it's a neo, it's a lesbian neo-noir. That's really all you need to know. You definitely need to watch it. I watched it again last night. Fucking love it. Um, and, and that, that is one that kind of evade both uses tropes and then just evades all the tropes and it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> Wachowskis are good, very good at that. <laughs> 
Um, unfortunately, it's still labeled as the Wachowski brothers, uh, but that. but that was before they they um, they came out as trans. And so obviously this is a lesbian movie directed by trans women, which I think is fantastic. I remember I remember when that movie came out, it was so poorly marketed and it really just did not do it justice. So I'm glad that it's kind of having new life and is being re- properly contextualized these days. I think because it, it looks like it might be sort of a fetish a fetishization. That's exactly how they marketed it. Yeah, and that's that's what it looks like, and even the posters and everything. And some of it is is you know kind of the era that it was made in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it it looks like that this is like a fetishistic view of of lesbian women and lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there are lesbian men, you know, Eddie is who used to identify as a lesbian. Uh, I don't, I don't know if she still does. Um, uh, but back before she came out, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it is that kind of fetishized view, but I, I love the fact that the film like completely cuts that in half. Like it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. Yeah. yeah. Very true. Okay. Well, I think that's going to wrap things up. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Watch no. more movies. Watch more movies. Yes. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, we want to thank everyone for listening. Sorry that I've been just kind of all over the place. No, you know what? Fuck that. I'm not sorry. I've just been all over the place because that's just how my week has been. And you just have to, you know, take it or leave it. Hopefully take it. But anyway, um, we do want to thank everyone for listening and for supporting us. We especially want to thank our patrons um, who are Adriana, Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you all so much for your support. If you would like to join them and become a patron yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and subscribe. We also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, where we have lots of, of fun stuff there um uh shirts and and buttons and um grocery store bags all kinds of things anyway um and we have our ko-fi ko-fi.com slash citizen dame if you would like to follow along and read our work you've got um lauren's tribeca reviews and some other reviews that i've been writing on our website citizendamepod.com and you can email us if you have questions, comments, thoughts, ideas, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And we are, of course, on all the socials, Twitter and Instagram. We're at citizendamepod and Letterboxd. We are at citizendame. Lauren, where can people find you if they would like to do so? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LHBusiness. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. So that's going to finish things up for this week. We hope you have a great Father's Day, great Juneteenth, happy Pride, all the wonderful things. And we will catch you next time. Bye. Let's review our objectives. Kill the robots. And don't die. Don't die. It's just something you want to do every day. It's still an objective. If I may, we have one objective. We need to put this crystal in the turnip and get out of here. So, to do that, we have to get onto the base. To do that, we have to kill all the robots. To do that, we have to destroy the Zerg ship. And to do any of that, we have to not.